Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 4 today. Now, remember we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're working through Mark, but we are... Last time we left off last week, Christ was in the wilderness. He was just baptized. He was driven into the wilderness. And so um, we're going to have a two-part series. And, and, uh, and so this is going to be the second part on spiritual warfare. Because what Mark does not share with us are the three specific temptations that you see in Matthew and in Luke. And so I think it's helpful if we actually go to Matthew um, and, and kind of look at what Christ is going through in the wilderness when he's there. And so that's why we're in Matthew, even though we're going through the Gospel of Mark. Okay, So that's kind of what we're doing here. So uh, it's going to be Matthew chapter 4, and it's, it's right away. You'll see some of the overlap from last week, but uh, as far as the details go, there's, there's more detail in Matthew. So that's why we'll be here. So let's pray, and then we'll look at this. Father, we pray now for your illumination. Lord, we pray for your help. We pray for your grace. Father, we know that we are in a, a warfare, that we are in a conquest, and, and we have an enemy that's after our souls. And it's real, and in certain seasons, the pinch is certainly uh, more prevalent than other seasons, Lord, but we know that all of our life is filled with, with the flesh and the world, and especially as we see here, the enemy coming after us and trying to thwart us and knock us off the path. And so, Lord, we pray that you would equip us. We pray that you would strengthen us now, that you would help us to fight the good fight of faith through this message. Thank you for Christ who stood firm and held his ground and didn't give way to the, to the devil and the hope that we have because of that. We thank you for that, Father. So we pray that you would give us grace to, to be strengthened and encouraged by this, to be convicted, and to, to imitate Christ. Uh, when when he was in the wilderness. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so chapter 4. Now, this is very practical stuff. It really is. I mean, um, just because, you know, we're not Christ, of course. We're not the Messiah. And so, uh, but it's not to say that we don't have this same enemy. Because if we belong to Christ, we have Christ's enemies coming after us. Okay, so this is very important. Um, so chapter 4 of Matthew, and we'll start reading through some of this. Uh, starting in verse 1, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Verse 5, Then the devil took him into the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So here you have very uh, distinctly three different ways that the devil tries to come and, and tempt Christ. And, you know, a lot of this is, um, not all of it, excuse me, not a lot of it, all of this is very relevant for us because the, the devil has always used, in a way, there's always a pattern of schemes that the devil tries to use. And he's used this all the way back. So if you remember where we first see uh, Satan, you go back to Genesis chapter 3. Turn there with me for a second. Genesis chapter 3. And this is a whole sermon in itself. But Genesis chapter 3 
is uh, the first time we encounter the serpent. But in Revelation, it tells us who the serpent is. The serpent is the devil. Okay, so chapter 3, verse 1. This is right after God has made man and woman in the Garden of Eden. And verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty. There's a word for the devil right there, right? He's crafty. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. God did not say that, right? God, God said there's only one tree that you're not supposed to eat from. And here the devil's trying to twist it. The devil knows what God said. But the devil's trying to, he's trying to get into Eve's head and kind of insinuate certain things about God so that she ends up tripping on what God actually says. So tripping up in her faith. And it works. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And a lot of times people say, see, there, she, she's already adding something here. Because God never said not to touch it, but Eve has included that, right? So she's already kind of slipping a little bit. Um... Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. And so if you look here, what's the very first thing that the devil says? He says, indeed has God said. So he's working on God's word to try to discredit the things of God, right? So he always comes after God's word. That's a tactic that everybody still to this day uses. I mean, even coming over here, we're talking to uh, Tim and, and uh, Joseph and I about the the... Certain, certain claims that people will make about the New Testament Apocrypha and things like that, right? There's always an attempt to undermine God's Word. That's the way people have always worked. That's the way, why? Because as we saw last week, unbelievers truly are being enslaved by the devil. And they're working on the devil's behalf, even if they're not Satan worshipers. They're still acting, they're still doing the deeds of the devil. False religions are worshiping, false, they're, they're worshiping the devil, Ultimately, okay, so the devil knows what he's doing, even if people don't know what they're doing. Okay, so he's trying to undermine God's word. But verse four, what else does he go after? The serpent said to the woman, you will surely, you surely will not die. Judgment. That's the other thing people always try to undermine, right? Hell, the judgment of God, the anger of God, the wrath of God, that God's a holy God. He can't stand evil. He can't stand uncleanness as far as your sin goes. That's why we need a savior. Those are the two things that to this day, people, the devil, is still using to try to undermine the things of God. It's amazing, right? So it's still at work here. So this is something, you're talking thousands of years ago, the principle is still in effect. You and I, we encounter this every single day, even if we're unaware of it. You know, when you go to class or you go to school or, or, or you're talking to somebody and they're talking about, you know, you came from a chimpanzee or something like that, they're undermining the Word of God. Right? When you're talking to somebody and they're saying this about, I don't know, different speculations about things that are clearly unbiblical, what are they doing? They're undermining God's Word. We have it in our culture today, let's say like homosexuality, abortion. They're saying, is abortion that big of a deal? Yes, it is. Why? Because it's murder. They're undermining God's Word. Homosexuality, they're undermining God's Word. That's the way it's always been. So don't be surprised, right? That's why we have this. Now, if you go to what Christ is going through in uh, Matthew chapter 4, it's very... Uh, similar in the, se- in the sense of the, their, the patterns that we see Christ going through at the, at, the, at the attempts of the enemy are going to be certain patterns that we ourselves go through in our own lives. Okay, So if you go to chapter 4, you see that Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. We saw that in Mark. And He's there to be tempted by the devil. And so verse 2, after He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, He then became hungry. Okay, So He's hungry right now. Notice when Satan comes. First of all, he comes in Christ's weakness. He doesn't come when Christ is first out there. 
He waits, right? So he's waiting until you are um, suffering, until you're hungry, until you, you you have some calamity going on in your life. Why? Because you become more susceptible to the temptation. You become more prone to being knocked over by the enemy. And so he waits until Christ is hungry. And then, verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, and how does he tempt him? With the very thing that he's needing, right? Bread. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now look what he says first. If you are the Son of God. What's he trying to do? He's trying to discredit Christ's relationship with his Father. If you truly are God's Son, then do this. Let's see you do it. How do we see that in our own lives? Well, how many times do people really wrestle with whether or not they're right with God? Believers. Right now, sometimes it's healthy to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. But a lot of times, believers can get knocked over and they're questioning, Hey, am I even saved? Am I right with God? Am I a son of God? Do I have God's favor? Right? And what is that? A lot of times, that is the enemy trying to manipulate your thoughts so that you despair over your relationship with the Lord. If he does this with Christ, who, by the way, right after he's baptized, right, you have God himself saying, this is my beloved son. And now he's in the wilderness and the devil's like, oh, yeah, if you're really God's son, then do this. Now, what's amazing about this is, is Christ's response. And a lot of, so, so every one of Christ's response, responses, he uses scripture and the scripture he quotes is Deuteronomy of all places. You know, a lot of times you're like, I'm not going to read Deuteronomy. Like, what's in Deuteronomy? Well, Christ sees Deuteronomy, just like we should see all the Scripture, as a very, uh, a, a very important, effective weapon against the enemy. Even Deuteronomy, right? So Deuteronomy, so if you turn to, uh, I want you to see this, Deuteronomy 8.3. What's going on here is, is um, so this is back towards the beginning of the, of the, of the Scriptures. This is, uh, this is Moses recounting all the things that God has done for Israel when they're in the wilderness. Now, you remember how... It, so, so when Israel's in the wilderness, they're out there, they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're upset, for really from day one. I mean, they're seeing miracles, and yet they're kind of hungry, and so they start griping at God. Look at this. Look at verse 2, 8, 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so what's going on here is, in a sense, just like we saw with Christ in the wilderness, where you had people going out to John the Baptist, who were Israelites, and yet they themselves, uh, they were sinners, and they themselves were not the true Israelite. Okay, here you have the, the Israelites in the wilderness back in Deuteronomy. They're complaining, they're grumbling. Why? Because they're hungry. But now you have Christ who's in the wilderness. He's hungry. It tells us that. He's hungry, right? Verse 2, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. But whenever he's hungry and the devil goes to him, see, if this was an Israelite back in the Moses' band, right? If it was one of those guys and the devil comes and says, hey, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be bread. And if they had the power, they would be commanding that stone to become bread. Why? Because they're not willing to just trust in God and wait for God. Wait for God to provide. 
But here you have Christ who is the exemplar of the nation of Israel. He's the true Israelite indeed. And when he's hungry, the devil comes and tempts him. He could have turned the stone into bread. But instead he says, no, I'm going to wait for God. This is, up, this is God's thing. If God wants to do that, he can do that. If not, that's fine. Because my sufficiency is God. Remember whenever he's talking to the woman at the well and the disciples go off and, uh, and, and he's talking to this lady and they went off to get him food and they come back with the food and he's like, I'm not hungry. And they're like, what do you mean you're not hungry? He says, I have food to eat that you know not, not, that you know not of. And they're thinking, well, did somebody come and feed him? What happened? He's saying, no, I'm content. I'm sufficient. Even if I'm starving, I am sufficient if I have the Lord. The Lord is what I need. And so I would rather have the Lord than to tempt God in doing some, into doing something that I, should, that I shouldn't do. And so we see Him, and, and, and in a sense, this is almost, uh, you know, I don't want to call it, it's not an easy temptation, but it is one of the easier ones that the devil comes after Christ with. And so the second one is, um, if you look at verse 5, So then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands. They will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now, here's here's what's interesting on this. And I tell you, look, if you think, you know, a lot of times I can't tell you how many times I meet people that are like, oh, I'm you know, I'm I I must be right with the Lord because I've read the Bible where I go to church. Well, you have to remember Right, Satan knows the Bible better than any of us. And Satan goes to church every Sunday. Every single time the church's doors are open, Satan is in the church. So he goes to church more than we do. He knows the Bible better than we do. He doesn't use it for good intentions, of course, right? But he knows. And so the point is, is this. He knows, and not only that, he, he knows us, in a sense. Now, he's not, he's not omniscient. He does not have the, the authority and the power that God has. And we're going to wrap up the whole sermon on this, okay? So don't think that, that Satan is some, Satan and God are not like dueling it out for, for, for primal authority here. God is sovereign over Satan. Satan knows that. Remember the book of Job where Satan has to go to God and ask permission to do anything. Okay, Satan knows, and we'll see in a minute, that Satan's even bound today. He's chained up spiritually. Okay, So it's not to say Satan is God. It's not to say you know, that, that, that you as a believer have to be terrified of everything when it comes to Satan. Not at all. But it's to say that Satan does know us. right? So we do have an enemy. We saw last week when we were going through all the different tes- uh, scriptures in the New Testament talking about how it's very clear we are in a warfare with a real living enemy who knows our weaknesses who knows what we're prone to do or not to do he knows this he knows our achilles heel he knows how to get to us and so what's amazing here is that right after right after he tells um christ you know if you're the son of god turn this bread into or turn these rocks into bread he turns around and what does he say here he says okay if, if 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 you're truly the son of god all right throw yourself off this temple then Throw yourself off the top here, because if you are, God's going to protect you. So he goes from tempting Christ with despair, right? Saying, oh, you know, in other words, you're not really the son of God. Come on, who are you kidding? To presumption, where it's like, okay, if you are the son of God, then, then you know, go out and test God a little bit. Let's see it. And, and the problem with this is this, right? So a lot of times we, we run into this trouble, I would say, in certain ways, right? So... Um, I remember, you know, the, every time I talk to a Roman Catholic, it's amazing because they can't figure out, and I know I've said this in here, so bear, me, uh, bear with me, but, you know, they can't figure out uh, 
Why, as a Christian, if, if, if I've truly been born again and all my sins have been forgiven, they can't figure out why I would try not to sin anymore. You notice that? They're like, if you, and, and a lot of times religions that teach that you can lose your salvation, you got to work to keep yourself, they'll, they'll do the same thing. In other words, they can't just be content with the fact that because Christ has saved me, because all my sins have been forgiven and paid for by Christ, I desire to live a life of holiness because it's pleasing to the Lord, not to get anything out of it. And so where we can err sometimes with this in our presumption is, well, if Christ really has paid for all my sins, then I can kind of whittle in certain areas of my life and still be okay. Well, that's true. That's true, right? That is true. However, at the same time, there's an untruth there as well. If that's my mindset, see, that's a red flag that perhaps I'm not really even converted, right? If everything, if I'm looking at ways to get around sin, if I'm looking at ways to like loopholes to try to justify certain behaviors and decisions. Now, I understand as Christians, we are in a warfare even with our flesh. So we always have to be on guard about that, right? But it is to say that what Satan is doing here, see, there is a truth in this, right? The truth is what? God will protect his children. Just like the truth and what I was saying, the example I was using is what? Christ has, if you're in Christ, Christ has forgiven you of all your sins. That's a fact. Christ does protect his children. If Christ launched himself off of the temple, it's true, God would have protected him. Now, it's not saying protect us if we do that, right? So don't try that. But it is to say, yeah, would he have... Because what is Satan after? Satan knows that if Christ sins one time, he can no longer be a savior. One time. If he has one thought that deviates from the glory of God, he is no longer equipped to save people from their sins because then he becomes a sinner. So the devil is after him in a way that we can't even fathom, right? Because he knows that this is the, if if Christ falls, we all fall with him. So he is going after him in every single way he can. And it doesn't stop here, as we know, as we'll see as we go through Mark. I mean, this is Christ's battle all through his life. But the point here is this, the untruth, so the truth is that God will protect his children. The falsehood in this is that that he uses the word of God in a way that is misapplied. It's not correctly used. What does the devil do? Just like we saw in Genesis 3. What's he do with Scripture? He twists God's Word. Did God really say? The devil knows some Scripture, and he knows enough of it to twist it. Just like every wolf will always do. They'll they'll give you a little Scripture, but they'll twist it. That's how it always is. It's not like they don't use any Scripture. They know that, hey, if I use a little Scripture, then you'll go for it. Because you're like, hey, it's the Bible. It must be right. Well, that's what the devil's doing here. The devil is using Scripture. He's saying, that what's, what's it say? The Scriptures say, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up. That's straight from Scripture. But what does Christ say? Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He knows what the devil's up to. So in other words, someone goes to you and they're like, Hey, you know, Christ has forgiven us of all our sins. Let's go, let's, you know, whatever it is. You know, let's go to the bar. Let's, whatever, whatever our certain inclination is towards whatever sin it is, right? For all of us, it's going to be different. That's the same thing the devil's using. He's this, this the same thing. You know, if Christ has paid for all our sins, why not? Right, no, do not put the Lord your God to the test, right? So that's what he's trying to come after Christ with. Christ is like, I don't think so. Go to, um, go to James chapter 1. Go to James chapter 1.
And if you remember, um, it's been a long time since Eric, well, about a year, I guess. 12 through, go, look at 12 through 15. But see, here's the thing with sin, okay? So you have, verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. So we're all, at, we're, we all know this, right? We're all going to be tried. We're going to be in, a certain, in certain trials in our lives, whether it's physical, spiritual, all kinds of trials, okay? Um, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. So that's the one who continues, who, who, doesn't, who doesn't, um, doesn't collapse under it, but they keep going. Even if they do collapse, they get up, you know, keep going. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And then he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And then he he continues here. But the point is, is this, being tempted is one thing. Christ was tempted in every way that we've been tempted, and yet he didn't cave to the temptation. Right? That's what James is saying here. Temptation is one thing. You and I, just being by virtue of the fact, hey, we're, we, we are people who have taken on flesh, and uh, we were not born of a virgin, and we are uh, people who, who are born to Adam. And um, even when we're born again, we still struggle with certain sins. Okay? But the thing is, is my weakness that the devil knows is going to come after, the devil's going to come after me in those exact areas and try to trip me up. Temptation is one thing, but once I, once I cave to that, once I give in to that, when I'm enticed by my own lust, by my own sin, when he says eventually that leads to death, he's talking here about spiritual death, yes, but he's also talking about in general, you know, the wages of sin, the reason people die is because of sin. Death is supernatural. That's something very important. Every time I preach a funeral, I try to really point out death is not natural. Death is supernatural. Death was not part of the original creation. The reason Christ came to earth to die was to conquer death. The reason he had to take on our sin on the cross was to overcome death. And so when you have the devil over here back in Matthew chapter 4, and the devil's trying to twist and he's trying to look for loopholes. Now with Christ, good luck, right? Good luck finding anything with Christ. But with us, we have armor that is filled with certain holes in it. And we have to be aware of that. We have to be honest with these, with these, these, these holes, I guess. These, these ways where the devil might come in and try to bring us down. We have to. Because that's, that's exactly that's the tactics that he uses, right? Okay, so that's on, a, that's on an individual level. And objectively, as far as like a corporate level, he's coming after the Word of God. He's going to try to undermine certain truths about Scripture, okay? Um, and then lastly, though, here's the thing on this one. The, the third temptation, and now this is interesting because you see here that, that uh, you know, sometimes whatever temptation you've been assaulted by in your life, prepare for worse. Prepare for things that are harder. Now, and I, you know, I don't mean to, I don't, don't, we shouldn't be, worried by that, right? It's to say that, hey, whatever you think was a difficult temptation in your life, um, I'm not saying for sure, but I'm saying you can assume that something like that or more difficult will eventually come your way. It'll come my way. Now, of course, that's like, oh man, I don't want to do that. But at the same time, remember, when you're in the moment, Christ is going to be there with you. Okay, and I'm saying this though because this, look at this, look at this. So you think the devil's tempting Christ in two different ways, but then this last temptation really is the worst. 
It's, it's the most heinous. It's the darkest. It's the most evil. And yet, it's something that we've all also been exposed to. So if you look at verse 8, again, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And, you know, just pausing right there, I, I, just, don't, I just don't understand what he's thinking. If you think about what he's doing here, he's going to the son of God. He's going to the one who created all these kingdoms, who created this entire earth. The one who, you know, every mountain was created by him. Every star in the sky, every human being, every hair that is on, that's on our head. Everything was made by Christ. And here the enemy goes to Christ and says, listen. You see all of this stuff, all the pomp, all the glory. You know, I was reading through commentaries like Matthew Henry, some of the old Puritans, and they were creating these really, and I'm sure Spurgeon has something nice, these really wonderful pictures of, you know, how Satan must have been trotting out like, like Caesar and, and all the, 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 uh, the glory of Rome and, all the, and Alexander the Great and all these glorious empires that have ever been on earth and all the power and beauty and wealth and luxury. And here he's marshalling all of that stuff before the eyes of Christ. And he says, if you want all of this, all you have to do is bend the knee and I'll give it all to you. Now, here's the thing, though. We're like, well, of course Christ isn't going to go for that. But would we go for that? That would be, think about it, right? Everything that you're attracted by in the world, and here the devil is just like trotting it out. Just, just imagine you're in that situation. And he's like, here, 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 all of it is. And all you have to do is bend the knee, and it's all yours. Now, you're like, well, I wouldn't do that. And, and by God's grace, you wouldn't. Right, But the reality is this. In our lives, we do that, I would say, like every day in certain ways. Anytime that we choose the world over Christ, that's exactly what we're doing. And in fact, you could even say anytime that we sin, that's exactly what. Why? Because we're looking at these things, and even if it's unconscious, we're weighing them in a, in a balance. And we're saying, you know what? The sin is more attractive right now than the things of Christ. And so I go after the sin, whatever it is, right? And so what you have in Scripture is you have a lot of different places where it's talking about, for instance, if you turn to, uh, actually turn to Genesis 3 again, going back to the very beginning. What is it that, that tempts Eve to eat the fruit that the devil tempts her with? See, Satan continues his assault with Eve in verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He does the same thing with Christ, right? He says, the reason God doesn't want you to eat from this is because if you eat from this, your life is going to be a lot better than it is now. You're going to have more knowledge. Your eyes are going to be open to things. You're going to have certain things, certain privileges that you don't have right now. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, if you turn to 1 John, you're going to see the exact same language. 1 John, towards Revelation in the back. 1 John chapter 2, you're going to see the very similar language. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, here it is right here, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. And by the way, the, the word life there is not, so usually when, when, um, 
when, when in the in, in the Greek, when you when you have the word life, it's, it's Zoe. You might you might I know a guy that's a guy Zoe. Um, I think we call him Zoe. I don't Zoe Zoe. Anyway, so that word means life, though. Well, this word that's typically interpreted uh, life is not Zoe here. The word for life here means stuff. It means property. It means wealth. It means it means. Uh, an accumulation of, of the world's stuff that the world sees attractive or sees as attractive. That's what the word there that's used. So going back, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life or stuff is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And so this is very important. Why? Because this is a temptation that's coming after every single one of us every single day, right? The, the, the stuff, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, the boastful pride of stuff. I mean, this is something that we are all very prone to. Christ, I mean, well, here's, the, here's what's neat, right? So when, when the Bible says that Christ has been tempted in every way that we've been tempted, He really has in a certain extent. Of course, uh, of course the Scriptures say that. But think about what that's saying, right? He's had every single imaginable temptation pass before his eyes. The things that we would be like, yep, I want that, I want that, I want that, I'll take that, I'll take that. And Christ looks at all of that and he says, no, it's not worth it. Why? Because, now here's the thing, if you're looking at all of the stuff that the world calls glorious, that the world calls a delight, the, um, you know, and I'm not saying this just because it's, it's the, the Super Bowls today, but I remember, um, you know, to me, like the, the person that, that, you know, the world, I, I think like just like the top of the pinnacle would be somebody like Tom Brady, right? I mean, he's like at the pinnacle. Like if you could pick any life to just say, you know what, I want that life. Okay, I, most people, I think, would choose something like Tom Brady or, I don't know, uh, Beyonce, if people are still into that. I don't know, right? But we all have those people that are, like, at the top. But if you actually consider their life, okay, first of all, 100 years from now, 50 years from now, nobody's going to even remember Tom Brady. I guarantee it. I mean, if you think about who the best football player was, like, 50 years ago, we're like, uh huh. Who cares, right? We care about the guys who are playing now. 50 years from now, they'll be doing the same thing. Nobody's going to care about Tom Brady in 50 years. He might be on like an ESPN reel every now and then, but nobody's going to watch it. So Tom Brady, and here's the thing, Tom Brady, when he dies, Tom Brady's not going to care about the things that Tom Brady had when he was in life. All these Super Bowl trophies, they're not coming with you. Your, you know, whatever you have in life, your houses, your, your swimming pools, your motorcycles, you know, whatever you have in life, they don't go with you when you die. And so if you actually look at these things from the right perspective, you realize these things really are not worth it. Remember what Christ said, what does it profit a man to give up his soul in exchange for the entire world? It's really not worth it. So if somebody comes to you with a platter and you're like, well, I, I've never seen that, but they do. Every single time we're tempted, this is what's happening. There's this exchange. There's this balance being, being weighed out. And the, the, the option is, and now we know that you can't lose your salvation. I'm not saying that, right? If you're in Christ, you've been made a new creation. You have the mind of Christ. Okay, You're in the process of being sanctified. But the reality is this, in every single one of our lives, the devil knows what you're attracted to. And he's going to come and try to tempt you with those things to make you stumble and so that you begin and, 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 
And we all know how easy and subtle this is. You take one step in a certain direction, and before you know it, the things of God don't look that great anymore. You're not into it anymore, right? And you start going down, and then usually if you're in Christ, what will happen is something like in Hebrews 12. When God comes in, He disciplines you, He chastises you, something to get you back on the path. And that's usually hardly ever very pleasant. But that's, that's what we're up against, right? So the devil knows, hey, if I can especially... Now, I want to take this back to here in this church plant because especially in a church plant, especially individuals who are trying to go all in for the Lord, right? We have a target on our back that people who are more nominal, that don't really care about the Lord, that aren't really committed to anything, the devil's not going after them. I mean, they'll have their temptation. I'm not saying that. You know what I mean? But, but in reality, look... When, you, when you're like, you know what? I'm committing to the Lord. I'm ready. Well, within the first hour, you know how it is. You have things that you're like, what is going on? Where is this coming from? This is a real battle. And the beauty of it is this. I want to leave with three, uh, three applications here. Okay, Number one, God will not allow you to be tempted above your strength. Okay, So even if we have an enemy, remember... We also have a good father who's going to keep us from, from crumbling. He does. And you see this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Look what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Right? And then right after that, it's interesting. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And that's exactly what the devil was tempting Christ with, idolatry. Horrible, horrible idolatry, blasphemy. Bend the knee to me and you can have everything. I don't, did I even finish reading that? I mean, I was so... Look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's how Christ responds. And then it says in verse 11, the devil left him. Okay, number two... Um, the devil is a conquered enemy. And I want to look at this in light of, uh, if you go to Mark, the gospel we're working through, look up chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. The devil's conquered. Okay, we, we are, the, the devil is a conquered enemy. Look at 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, Who is this? Or excuse me, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. See, they know that something is going on with this man, Jesus Christ. This Christ that's casting out demons here is still the Christ who has authority over demons sitting at the right hand of God right now. Okay, so, so just know that the, the enemy's been conquered, and there's other places to look to. If you look at chapter 3, verse 27, um, 
Yeah, so this is this is this is nice right here. So it's a, it's a parable that he says because uh, there. So look at starting twenty, and he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. That includes Mary, by the way. Assumingly, most people say that, right? So. Um, at some point, you know, again, I mean, this certainly isn't to bash Mary, but it's to say that if you ever hear of anyone saying that Mary was sinless, there was there were times when Mary was quite confused, just like all the other brothers and sisters that who in the world is is this guy and how is he doing this right so verse 22 the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul that's the devil he is possessed by Beelzebul and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons and he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables how can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I have entered and bound the strong man, and now I am plundering his property. That's what Christ is saying. I am plundering the devil's property. I'm taking back what belongs to God. So Christ has authority over Satan. And then, and remember too, when the disciples go out, he sends the 70 out and they come back and they're excited. They're like, man, we're doing miracles. We're seeing demons do this and that. And Christ says, I saw Satan falling out of heaven like lightning. So throughout Christ's life, and we'll see it as we continue the book of Mark, you know, this, this is, this is the... Uh, when, when, whenever we're evangelizing and, and you know, people are always like, Hail Satan! You hear that a lot. Hail Satan! They're trying to be funny or whatever. And you're like, man, why? Satan has been conquered. Satan's been crushed. Satan's been defeated. Why, are you, why would you follow a conquered foe? A conquered enemy? Like, this guy is impotent. He can't do anything apart from God. Now, why does God allow Satan to work certain things in our lives? To sanctify us. To keep us humble. To keep us close to Him. Because we, he knows that we need to be in this warfare. We need to be sharpened all the time. He doesn't want us getting lazy, spiritually sluggish, spiritually you know, obese. I mean, he wants us in the fight, fighting, keep going. And so that's why. And so, and of course, there's, I'm sure there's other reasons too. But, um, and then lastly, 1 John 3.8. 1 John 3.8. And this is about as clear as it gets. Chapter 3, verse 8. And it's the very end of 3.8. So the last part of verse 3.8. It says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Remember when Christ is on the cross. Again, He cries out, It is finished. It's finished. The work of salvation is finished. Going back to Genesis 3.15. Remember, after Adam and Eve sinned against God. And this is to kind of bring home the Genesis story. God appears to Adam and Eve. And first he starts talking to the devil, and he tells the serpent this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. When he says he shall bruise you on the head, in the ancient Near East, that was they knew that that was a death sentence. That God is t- telling the serpent that he's going to crush your head. He's going, he's going to um, kill you. Um, and also when it says you shall bruise him on the heel, that was a death sentence. So if a snake bites you on the hill, you're going to die. That's how they saw it. And so that's what he's, basically, that's what he's saying. So in the ancient Near East, that was the culture, and that's what he's saying, that, that even though Christ is going to die, he's going to crush the serpent's head. 
So because of what Christ has done, because of Christ not only in the, uh, in the wilderness here, but throughout his life, because he resists the enemy and overcomes the enemy by going to the cross and dying, we are now um, heirs of everything that Christ has. Now, on the one hand, because of that, we have an enemy that Christ has. We have the same enemy. But on the other hand, remember who has authority over the enemy. Okay? And then lastly, and this is what you see with Christ in the, in the wilderness here. After, the, after he encounters the devil, uh, the devil flees and the angels come to minister to him. So remember that too. You're not doing this alone. You're not, it's not like it's you versus the enemy. You have angels who are ministering to you. You have Christ who is ministering to you. Okay, and that's that's one of the important things about a church too, by the way, right? The the church is is we we're to help each other out in these trials and temptations and everything that we go through in life. That's one of the beauties of having brothers and sisters in the Lord who are out there fighting the same fight that I'm fighting. We come together and encourage each other. But we have people, we have angels, we have Christ who's ministering to us. So you are not fighting this fight alone. And so remember, Christ has defeated this enemy, and this is only for a season. This temptation is only for a season. The trial is only for a season. Do not, do not cave. And if you do cave, get up and turn to Christ, right? Turn back to Christ and cling to Christ, even if you can't even... You know, sometimes people get in the valley so much and they're in the valley in such, to such an extent that they're like, I don't even know where Christ is. And you'd hear Puritans talk this way, but what can they do except cling to Christ? That's all they have, right? And, and Christ just drags them through it and gets them to the finish line. So in those moments too, just trust in Christ and cling to Him with all you got, knowing that He's going to get you through it. All right? All right, let's pray. Father, we do praise You.